This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The school shooting in Florida last week made Avery Griggs mad. Yes, she knew how sad it was to see another school go through what hers did four years ago, but more than sadness, she just felt angry. Griggs was a sophomore at Arapahoe High School in Metro Denver when senior Claire Davis was killed. And Griggs, like other survivors of school shootings, thinks about it often. Avery, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Why did you feel angry last week? You know, seeing school shootings happen time and time and again just gets frustrating. Um, you know, you think once Arapahoe happened, it, became, it brought a whole new awareness to me. And the frustration of it just kind of built and built as more and more appeared. And students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas are demanding action now like they did at the Florida State Capitol. Not one more. Never again. What do you think of this activism that you're seeing now after the shooting? I think it's so wonderful. I think it's about time that it happened. I know that when I went through it and when a lot of my friends went through it, it was very hard to take action because you feel so vulnerable. You feel so young. And so I think it's absolutely wonderful that students especially are taking the time and finding the representatives and going out and making a difference. So what do you think has changed since? I think just gun control needs to change. And I think more and more school shootings have happened and that, you know, it was a straw on the camel's back. It finally made the difference. What um, is misunderstood about these incidents? Do you think from your perspective as a student who's, who's gone through something like this? That it doesn't end just the shooting. Once you, once you go through the shooting and you walk outside, your entire life changes. There's a whole new normal to it in that, you know, like you said at the very beginning, when I see a school shooting, it brings back memories. It brings back everything. It's a and trigger. It is. Yeah. Oh, it, bring, it brings back a lot of PTSD and it really opens your eyes again to what needs to change. How about your life personally? I mean, you said that PTSD is triggered after these events. You're still feeling this every day, I'm assuming. I think about it every day. Something will bring it up, whether it be a car door slam, because the gunshots just hear like textbooks dropping. They hear, they sound like a very generic noise when you don't know what it is. And so when you hear it again, it just sounds like a gunshot. There's no other noise. It's like textbooks dropping. Exactly. Yeah. Were there images that you saw on television that also trigger things for you? The image of students walking outside with their hands in the air. I know the most triggering thing for me that day was um, walking out of the classroom and there was the SWAT team and they had military caliber weapons. And it, I had never been exposed to something like that. And that hands down was the most triggering image and that brought back the most for me. What does PTSD do to you? It takes you back. It kind of brings you back to, the, to a moment and you kind of have to compose yourself. For me, I've just kind of found ways to talk myself through it. When I hear a noise, I rationalize it. It's those kind of things that with PTSD, until you know how to handle it, you don't know how to handle it. So that's how I've kind of gotten through it. Do you reach out to fellow classmates and friends? Please? I do at times. Um, it's kind of with friends. It's also kind of an elephant in the room. No one really wants to talk about it because there's so many other wonderful things going on. Um, but for example, when the shooting in Florida happened, a friend of mine reached out and asked how I was doing with it. And it's those kind of moments that that's when it comes back. Yeah. So, like, everyone responds, like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Exactly. And that seems almost overwhelming for you. In a way. Yeah. In a way, yeah. What do you say to that? You know, I say, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And I know that she said the same thing. And we had a very long conversation about it. And it's just, what, there's, it just feels like you're so helpless. It feels like there's nothing you can do about it because we feel so small. 
So you had two more years at Arapaho, mm-hmm. then went off to college in Indiana. Yes. I imagine that was a huge move huge for you <laughs> from a community that was really sensitive about what you went through to maybe a place that no one knew that you'd been through something like this. Exactly. Uh, how was that transition for you? And what changes do you notice in your own behavior in this new place? So um, I was at a very good place with the shooting at Arapaho. And um, when I moved, I thought it was going to stay the same. I didn't think it was going to come up ever again. And once I got to Indiana, a very, very different environment than Colorado, for sure, um, a lot more triggers came up because people weren't as sensitive to the topic because no one knew what I was going through with it. Um, I had one student that was a junior at the time um, that I reached out to when I got to Butler that I hadn't really known at Arapaho. And I just said, listen, I don't know if you dealt with this. But I'm kind of struggling with it. He took me out to ice cream and we talked about it and it kind of made things a little more normal for me. Um, Being away from home and being away from the community was a huge change. And it was something that did take a lot of time to get used to. But once I found that close knit group of friends I could talk to about it, it was it was wonderful again. Do you find yourself uh, uh, more nervous around new people or places now? Um, places for sure. Not really people. Um, very, very crowded places make me very nervous. I kind of always have to find my way out. Um, and that's kind of the main thing. But people I've never really had a problem with. Now that there is this never again movement that, mm-hmm. that is that is rising, do you plan to maybe get into student activism now because of this? I really do plan to. I've always wanted to. And I think it took... It took someone else to do it for me, which I really don't like in myself. I really wish I could have been one of the people to have started this movement, but I really hope I can get behind it. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Avery Griggs was a sophomore at Arapahoe High School in Metro Denver when a student there was shot and killed four years ago. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Google has vastly expanded in Boulder, from a few hundred workers to a new campus for 800 right on Pearl Street downtown. In Google tradition, the new digs put a premium on workers' happiness and in keeping them on campus for as many hours as possible. CPR's Grace Hood got a sneak peek and details on how Google's trying to minimize its environmental impact. Hi, Grace. Hey there. How does the new campus incorporate Boulder and what makes the city so unique? Well, you know, it's a whole lot more than just an office building when you walk inside. Um, You know, just even in the lobby, there's this huge outdoors theme. Um, To make workers happier, Google's really seeking to create spaces that those workers want to be in for a long amount of time. Um, You walk in the front reception area and it's kind of got this forest feel almost. There's these aspen tree trunks. Um, The actual main reception desk looks like a giant tree house. Uh, There's AstroTurf kind of around there. And then um, a couple floors up from there, a big barista coffee stand right next to um, a camper that you can actually have meetings in, which is kind of cool. And there are these little seats or stools that I've never seen that look like rocks that were sitting out in front of the camper. That was kind of neat. So definitely a place that people feel comfortable being in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, on the environmental impact side of things, where did you see Google trying to do something different? That's right. Yeah. In the kitchen, I would say, for the most part, Google provides free breakfast and lunch for most of its workers, and it composts 
all the food scraps at the end of those meals. So uh, I've spoke with Tiffany Timmons. She's the campus facility manager for the 800 people who work there. And she says the kitchen staff actually dehydrate the food scraps first. And then we take the dehydrated food down into our loading dock where we have a composting machine. We put all the dehydrating food into the composting machine, and then it's ready to, again, as I've mentioned, give out to Googlers in their gardens. Then they also share those food scraps with local farmers and ranchers. And that's actually a practice that Google started on its California campus um, that houses thousands of workers. And it's there's also a focus, I noticed in Boulder, on air quality inside the office. That also started in California, where air pollution is just significantly worse than it is on the front range. I know it takes a huge amount of energy to run Google with all the data centers and everything else. So how far has the company come to making that sustainable? How does what Google's doing with this campus compare to, uh, let's say, other companies you've seen in Boulder? Well, you know, worldwide, Google has been a big deal among companies. Last year, it announced that it released 100, uh, it reached 100% renewable energy fueling operations worldwide. Uh, it's doing this by signing these long-term contracts um, with wind and solar energy providers in other states. Think Iowa, South Dakota, Oklahoma. And this is a, an approach that other companies Companies like Microsoft are really taking to reduce energy-hungry data centers and the demands there. In Boulder, you know, it was surprising not to see solar panels and other things like that on the Google building. That city has several net zero energy office buildings, and you just see a lot of solar panels driving around. Timmons says that's something the company is certainly working on. She was pretty tight-lipped about specific renewable energy projects around the building. And so uh, stay tuned is what you're saying. Yes. Okay, because I, I haven't seen any solar panels or anything like that around here. Um, right now, we have, we're working on it, and it would be roofed, so you would not see it. Now, it's worth pointing out that the company has had its doors open for just two months. And, you know, it also didn't commission the building from scratch. So I think there's some fine-tuning of elements like electricity use that's really going on right now. Some people in Boulder have been nervous that the Google campus will clog up downtown traffic and parking. How's the company encouraging workers to commute in other ways besides a car? You know, I've seen this uh, with other companies on the growing front range as I-25 gets more crowded. Google is keeping a really close eye on traffic, and it's very sensitive about some of the congestion issues caused by, you know, you have hundreds of workers coming and going uh, from the same place every day. Uh, Google has bought some bike share memberships from B-Cycle, which is the bike share in Boulder for its workers. Uh, This year, it rolled out out what it's calling a parking cash-out program. And so basically, if you're a Googler, you can earn $5 a day if you don't drive your car to campus. Um, They also make bike storage very easy when you commute on your bike. And there's even a room to repair your bike if you're having issues. And I will point out that it's right next to the massage room where you can get free massages if you're a Google worker. Oh, that sounds fancy. (laughs) Very. Grace, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. CPR environment reporter Grace Hood on her tour of the new Google office space in Boulder. And there'll be more. Google plans to finish a third building by the end of next year. That would about double its capacity to 1,500 people in downtown Boulder. Legal marijuana is not quite legal for everyone. Non-citizens of the U.S. who want to partake in Colorado's booming marijuana industry are in for a rude awakening. 
CPR's Anne-Maria Wad says they could get caught in the, inter- in the intersection of federal drug policy and federal immigration policy. Flo was initially reluctant to take a job in the marijuana industry. He came to the U.S. on a student visa and was having a hard time finding a job that paid as well as his old one back in his native France. That was when a neighbor who worked for a marijuana grow encouraged him to give it a try. I don't know. I would say it took him about a month to convince me to come check it out because um, it's, it's really not what I wanted to do. I and mean, I had no idea how I was going to explain this to my family also, because that's really not what I was going for. We're not using Flo's full name for reasons I'm going to get to in a second. He started out trimming marijuana plants and moved up in the company. Things were going well. He and his American girlfriend got married, which meant Flo got a green card. So the way that it works is that when you get your green card via your spouse, they give it to you for two years. And two years later, they want to make sure that it was not a scam, that we actually are in love and married and living together, and that I didn't just give her some money so that I could get my green card. He wanted to make sure his ducks were in a row before that two-year check-in, so the marijuana company he worked for paid for him to consult with an immigration lawyer. The news was not good. There was there was just not much that they, that they could do for me if uh, if I was to get caught then it would become very complicated for me. And so I made the decision to go back home. Here's what he means by complicated. Marijuana is still illegal federally. So any job in the industry is considered trafficking in a controlled substance. That can get a legal resident like Flo deported and banned from the U.S., sometimes for life. That's why we're not using his full name or the name of his employer. The situation isn't just a dilemma for immigrants like Flo, but also for the marijuana companies that would like to hire them. We had no idea that that was going to happen. We had no idea that this was an issue that was going to be brought to our attention. Christy Kelly heads the Marijuana Industry Group, a business and lobbying association that counts some of Colorado's biggest names in marijuana among its members. I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as fair versus unfair uh, um, so much as this is an issue of uh, confusion and uh, an issue that really needs to to get a little bit of sunlight on it. Which is why the marijuana industry group partnered with Servicios de la Raza, a nonprofit that works with low-income people. Together, they created a PSA explaining all the ways that involvement with marijuana can get non-citizens thrown out of the country. Possession, sale, and trafficking of marijuana all remain federal crimes under the Controlled Substances Act. Even tourists stopping in for a joint during a visit to Denver risk running afoul of customs agents who are increasingly searching phones and asking questions. And for immigrants living in Colorado. So what does this mean for you? Do not grow, possess, or use marijuana or other federally illegal substances. Do not work for a marijuana company, even if you're married to a U.S. citizen. Dean Heiser, the executive director of the LiveWell chain of dispensaries, has that PSA playing in the lobby of every one of his stores. That's because some of his employees would have been affected, too. In anticipation of potential immigration actions um, by the government, um, we have proactively reached out to folks and advised them of the situation. And invariably, when they've been advised, they've chosen to quit. The threat of deportation in these situations existed under President Obama. But Violetta Chapin, an immigration law professor at CU Boulder, says the risk is higher with the Trump administration. Combine President Trump's surge in immigration enforcement with a Justice Department that's hostile to marijuana. And Chapin says the outlook isn't great. This is something that we as a country really need to take a hard look at, which is how are we going to 
deal with the enforcement that happens around marijuana still at the federal level. Chapin says there is one easy way for immigrants to avoid this problem. I tell them, don't get near it. Don't do it. I'm sorry, you're just not like everybody else. Like, I can walk into a dispensary tomorrow and buy a joint and and go to my house and smoke it, for sure. You, unfortunately, that's a huge risk for you. Notwithstanding a significant shift in either immigration or drug policy, just say no seems to be the only option for non-citizens. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. The idea for this new education campaign aimed at immigrants came partly from a Latino-focused nonprofit in Denver, Servicios de la Raza, which translates to services for the people. Eddie Soto is its field director. Eddie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. How did this issue of immigrants and the risks they face with pot first come to your attention? A long time ago, Art Way with the Drug Policy Alliance, we were talking about this issue that it was very confusing to people to understand the separation between state law and federal law. But at the same same time, we agreed that the Obama administration probably was not going to be tracking people down for smoking a joint and wasn't, and wasn't hostile to immigrants, especially legal permanent residents who would be the most affected. But we've seen from the Trump administration that they are focusing on ways to deport um, legal permanent residents and other people who would be normally safe in the United States. And that's what raised us. Kind of to and, this level, this new yeah, level. That exactly. You're and we've now. actually seen some actions where people have gotten into deportation processes for smoking marijuana, even in legal states. The PSA video you put out warns people not to post any evidence of marijuana use to social media because immigration enforcement agents have always been able to check immigrants' social media. Under President Trump, the Department of Homeland Security has expanded that authority. Uh, Do you have evidence that since he's taken office, this practice or other practices like this have been more common? Yes, there is. uh, Before the Obama administration, we normally had like 200 searches, 300 searches at the border. Uh, in January, ICE announced that they had done 3,000, almost the amount of social media searches that they had done in the four years of the Obama administration. Were there other actions that you've seen besides the social media stuff? Well, obviously, Jeff Sessions talking about marijuana being evil and every other thing else. We've seen that. We've also seen the pulling away of TPS from Salvadorians, Nicaraguans, Haitians. We've seen... um, Temporary protective status. Right, exactly. So we've seen all these attacks on legal permanent residents or refugees. So we know that there's going to be another attack that's coming. So we're talking to our community about how to protect themselves because um, we've... You see it when they're talking about the immigration reform. They're talking about doing away with a whole bunch of programs that have existed in the history of the United States, uh, and we just see um, the rhetoric that a group called like Numbers USA has been using for 30 years becoming commonplace. And that to us is very, very frightening because we now see that they're going to use every single tool possible to get rid of people of color or country or from countries of origins they don't want to see. I, I want to get back to the marijuana industry and and the employers themselves, why not just uh, get employers involved in warning their employees of the risks? It's complicated because under labor laws, you can't discriminate against people for country of origin. So you can't ask them, hey, are you from X, Y, or Z? Exactly. You can't ask them what is your immigration status or where do you – because that's illegal. 
And yet at the same time, if they don't ask, they're putting their employees at risk. So the marijuana industry is actually taking a very brave step by actually getting out and getting the PSAs and telling people, hey, by the way, you might not want to work for us. And yet they have that very thin line of labor law where if they tell somebody you can't work for me because you're from a foreign country, then they're breaking labor laws. So it's a very, very complicated issue, but I'm very glad that the marijuana industry is actually taking the brave step of addressing this with us. We know that in order to work for the marijuana industry, you're required to get a state license. Is this another way non-citizens are being flagged for deportation before they get to the employment level of things? Uh, Well, they're not supposed to share this with the federal government, and and we're always afraid that the Trump administration or a future administration might try to force these records out. Um, that's actually why we've talked with people like Joe Salazar and everything else to pass laws that protect those records and make sure that those records are never shared with the federal government because of things like this. Because somebody might not know that working in the marijuana industry might make them deportable and just apply, not necessarily work there, and that makes them deportable. So that's what we want to make sure that these records stay safe and secure. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have. We really need to legalize marijuana federally so we don't have these problems. So there's no danger for somebody who innocently gets in themselves into a position of getting deported. Do you offhand have any sense from working with the marijuana industry group how many people have been deported for involvement with legal marijuana in Colorado? We don't have those numbers. I do know of cases with lawyers who have been talking to clients who've gotten in trouble who are either in the process of being deported or, or stuck in a process where they can no longer go forward. They, they can't apply for citizenship because they ask you that question in the form whether you've ever violated the Controlled Substances Act and – even possessing smoking or working in the industry is a violation of that and therefore makes you deportable. So you're better off not even applying anymore because at least they don't know about it yet. But when you apply, they'll know about it and that will make you deportable. And does someone need to be convicted of a crime to be deported for this so they can do X and then there is a crime involved, then they're deported or is it? No. Hmm. And unfortunately, Bill Clinton did away with habeas corpus for immigrants a long time ago. So you don't even have the the right to confront your accuser. And that's actually the troubling thing about the Trump administration opening up uh, social media as part of your immigration record, because then you really don't have any opportunity to challenge anything. If somebody sees a photograph on your friend's Facebook page and they're smoking a joint and you're near there, that would make you deportable. And that's part and of those would, social media searches that, that, that they can Right, exactly. And that's what really – I mean that's why we're trying to tell people not only the legal permanent resident but their friends, please don't post anything out there that might make your friend deportable. So let's say someone finds themselves in deportation proceedings because of marijuana. Is there much that they can do? No, because clearly immigration law says you cannot violate the Controlled Substances Act. But that is, isn't that appropriate for, for where they are in the, in the system? Do you, do you mean it's – no, because it's an innocent mistake. I mean we used to require something called scienter in law, which means intent to actually commit a crime. But if you believe that marijuana is legal – but I mean, it's it's illegal at the federal level, but of course in Colorado there is a there is a state uh, legality to it, which right. of course and, and many people don't understand the difference, and that's actually the biggest problem. 
is there is a confusion by many people, I'd say 90% of the people in the country, that they believe that marijuana is legal for everybody. And yet we know if you practice immigration law that it isn't. But how many people actually know immigration law? It's so complicated. It, and that's the problem. We're having a lot of people innocently do something they didn't think is a violation of anything, making themselves deportable. Have you heard from a lot of people that, that they were caught off guard by this? It seems that you have. Yes. In fact, uh, after we ran the PSA and you guys ran the first story, I got a lot of calls from Latino media who was like, oh, and that is a, is this happening? And now they've been, now they're covering it because it's been like, we were there, we had heard the rumors and that's only because we have very good connections with immigrants and advocates. And we knew that there was starting to happen. It hadn't been, and we also didn't want to raise the red flag early because we're afraid that the more we have the conversation, maybe the Trump administration uses is even more to deport more people. And briefly, final question. With that said, will there be more PSAs that you plan to produce and, and put out to the public? Yes, we're working on the Spanish version of it. And we would actually love also help with people who speak other languages that immigrants to help us make the PSAs in every single language because we really need our community to understand that. Um, like the lawyer said in the story, unfortunately, you are treated very differently if you are an immigrant in this country. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Eddie Soto is field director for Servicios de la Raza in Denver. He's educating immigrants now marijuana could jeopardize their immigration status. We'll be back. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Anna Karochi makes a decision and then waits for God to show her whether it was the right one. But one decision she's certain of is her desire to become a nun. It makes the 23-year-old junior at Metropolitan State University of Denver an exception in, in more ways than one. In the last decade, the number of sisters in the Archdiocese of Denver has declined by almost 50%. Anna joins us to talk about her decision, along with Father Ryan O'Neill, the Director of Vocations for the Archdiocese of Denver. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Father Ryan well, there have been three new orders in Denver in the last four years. Overall, the number of religious sisters has gone from 282 to 187. How do you account for this decline? Yeah, well, I think there's a practical answer to that. Speaking around the retirement age of sisters, those who, who retire, those who then become old and, and unable to do ministry. And a lot of the mother houses of the orders that originally moved to Denver are from the East Coast, like Cincinnati, Philadelphia. And so when they get older and they can't uh, sustain the amount of sisters here who are retired or in the nursing home, then they move them back to a facility like in Cincinnati where they'd have more support for those sisters. So that's one practical reason. And then I think another reason uh, is just that the, uh, the culture, especially in the church— has not been as uh, open or promoting of religious life, especially for women. And I think that example has not been as readily available to young women. So the response from young women hasn't been as as large or as, as noticeable as it was in the past. And when did that begin to change? I think you could trace it back to the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. There was a lot of confusion about how to implement 
the changes that the Second Vatican Council suggested in the church. And there was the media interpretation, and then there was the interpretation of the fathers who were actually at the council. The media interpretation really was much more liberal in its understanding. And so there was kind of a more of an integration of the sexual revolution, which encouraged which discouraged, I would say, men and women from really dedicating themselves to follow Jesus and the Catholic Church with that religious life as a nun or as a priest. So the religious community may have, the idea was that nuns and priests would be seen like everyone else in, in essence. Yeah, that was kind of the, the thought that that I think ended up kind of dissolving this countercultural image of what it means to be a priest or the countercultural attraction of what it means to be a religious sister. And so the, the numbers declined. And then yes. now we're at this point where the the remaining nuns and priests have been retiring and there's not a, a space to fill who's left, right? Exactly. How do you change that and, and encourage young women like Anna to become sisters? I mean, is there a recruiting campaign? Are there videos out there? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So as a vocation director, I do have a recruiting campaign. I'm specifically aiming at young men who are considering priesthood, but I'm also very interested in helping young women discern their vocation to be a religious sister or a nun as well. There are videos, there are, you know, posters and those kind of campaigns, but I think the most effective way that I've experienced is teaching young people how to have that encounter with Jesus Christ. Christ in the church and to have a kind of revolution of what of what their uh, and the anthropology really of what it means to be human, especially in the light of Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church, then they begin to understand what their mission is, what their role is, and then they learn how to pray at a deeper level and hear the voice of God working in their hearts about what He wants them to do. So if I can lead them to that point, then I then I just trust the Holy Spirit is going to be calling them, moving them, and increasing where He wants to increase and decrease what He wants to decrease. It seems very much like a mentor mentee type of thing. Exactly, find someone who has that connection with a, a young person to to help make that transition. That's a majority of my work. And then finding other mentors for people that I can't be a mentor for personally. Anna, did you encounter a sister or, or someone from the church that led you to wanting to become a nun? I mean, tell me a little bit about your journey. Yeah. So I'm originally from Canyon City, Colorado. And in that uh, part of our state, there aren't a ton of religious uh, down there. So I initially met religious communities when I moved up to Denver going on five years ago. Um, I initially met the Fraternas. They're a group of consecrated lay women who live here in Denver, um, and they opened my eyes to what it means to give your life completely to God and serve the church and um, especially serve the poor. They help run a program called Christ in the City, which I was a missionary for for two years, um, and I served the homeless of Denver um, for those two years. And uh, so they, they were my initial eye-opening um, moment for me in my vocation. And your family has been very encouraging of you about becoming a nun, right? Yes, they have. I grew up, I was, since I was a baby, <laughs> I grew up Catholic, baptized, um, received all my sacraments. Uh, my family is very supportive of my faith and have been examples to, in how to live out my faith. I, I know that becoming a nun is is akin to taking a giant leap of faith. I mean, that's that's really what this is. Was taking that leap for you scary? Um, it's been a process. It hasn't been one moment where it's like, okay, now I have to jump off. Um, but like little moments where I've had to say yes to Jesus, like, and he hasn't given me anything that I feel like is too much for me to handle. He'll present, God's timing is perfect. He'll present a moment or a situation. And I'll be like, okay, like this is, it. this is a little scary, but Jesus, like, I'm going to say yes to you. I'm going to take this step forward. It is scary. And I, I am kind of like 
jumping off the cliff a little bit, but but I know you're going to catch me and I know you're going to be there in that next step you're asking me. And Father, do you hear that from other people that may be interested in, in becoming part of this, that this is because this is a big thing? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. I think that's definitely a hurdle for for young men and women who are looking at their discernment process from the outside. So they see all these these things that they're going to have to let go of or that they're going to have to take a risk. And then there's a, an anticipatory fear. And I always just remind them that's that's why the Lord asks faith of us, that he'll, he'll give you 99%, but he won't ever give you 100% because he wants you to act in faith and freedom and freedom. We don't want to force anyone to become a religious sister or to become a priest. We want them to act in full freedom. Anna, what is the order you want to join? Why does it appeal to you? They're called the Servants of the Plan of God, uh, siervas in Spanish. And um, they. I was first attracted to the spirituality, the Sotilicium, and that, that was through Christ in the City. And I went on a mission trip about three years ago to Chile, and that was when I first met the sisters. And um, I loved in Denver working with the poor and the homeless. That really like spoke to my heart, and I felt like I was encountering Jesus in those people I was serving. So... And there, the Sierva's main vocation is to serve the poor and needy. And I, I experienced that firsthand when I was in Chile. And and ever since that moment, it like sparked something within me. I was like, wow, I could see myself doing this. This is, this feels good. Uh, this feels right. So that was when, that was the initial moment when I started pursuing this particular order. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Father Ryan O'Neill, the Director of Vocations for the Archdiocese of Denver, and Anna Karochi, a junior at Metropolitan State University of Denver who plans on becoming a nun. Um, Anna, what is it like interacting with your fellow students? Um, what role does your faith play in relationship with them? Uh, everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... I mean, are they surprised when they find out that you're... So, yeah, I mean, it's not something that I'm going to just like... <laughs> Hey, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it has happened a couple times uh, in my classes where I'd had a side conversation with a professor. My discernment had come up or I wear a crucifix around my neck. So that's definitely noticeable. And um, so there have been some moments in class where my professor is like, well, and by the way, Anna here is becoming a nun. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> this is a big thing and not the normal. And I think that's why they respond that way. <laughs> but um, it really has been a conversation starter in a lot of ways and just a lot of people uh, especially on my campus maybe don't believe in God or don't have a relationship with Jesus Um, so it's really just a starting point to say hey this is real Jesus is alive and I'm here to tell you about him so Father Ryan I want to talk a little bit about maybe how you how how you feel the church is now as opposed to where it was let's say 20 30 or 50 years ago in terms of maybe feeling a bit of counterculture there that things have kind of reversed from where they are yeah i think after it's been the history of the church after every major council when the church uh, you know begins to reform itself uh, according to the Holy Spirit, there's always a time of confusion for about 50 to even 100 years. It happened after the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea, and now we have the Second Vatican Council. So we we expect there to be this time of confusion, so to speak, where we're trying to to learn, okay, what's the new course for the church? And Pope John Paul II was super instrumental in that. Uh, everything he wrote was a commentary on the Second Vatican Council, and he then became the example of, of really what it meant to be a religious for a lot of people, what it meant to 
lay down your life for the church and for God and to give everything, to give everything in prayer and for the people of God. And so his legacy, I think, inspired a lot of young men, especially in the 90s. We started to see the increase through the thousands up till now of of just more and more young men and women uh, considering a religious life in the priesthood or as a nun uh, because of his example, which was so public and so vocal, which is what people really needed to see, was someone who was really giving us a due course uh, of where we should be going as followers of Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. But but there are still some ideas, I'm, I'm thinking marriage between being one man and in between one woman, mm-hmm. um, that that may uh, not be the, the worldview of, of many people. Exactly. And I think that's where Jesus, like you said, is countercultural because he's going to call us to that level of understanding what the human being is as far as the anthropology that I was talking about earlier, what is human sexuality made for? What are we made for? Um, and I think a lot of times our culture leans more towards pleasure and consumerism to consume and, and to find pleasure, whereas Jesus is looking more towards fulfillment, which doesn't necessarily mean pleasure. A lot of times that includes pain, suffering as a mother, as a father, as a friend. Um, so that's why it's countercultural. I think there's that countercultural aspect of following Jesus where he, he just— helps us to understand the dignity of the human being in such a different way. And I think that's why even Anna might have, you know, people come up to her. And when I was discerning priesthood saying, you know, wow, you're really not going to be married. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a question that people have is sexuality is kind of the issue. Like they, they might believe in God, but, but when it comes to sexuality, that's just so countercultural for us to say, no, I'm never going to have sexual intercourse. I'm never going to have children. I'm never going to have a wife. And for people to hear that, they're like, whoa, that, that's real catching, you know, that really gets their attention. Anna, what do you think about that? Because that, that is a big question that many people have. You have to be celibate. Yeah, yeah. I've had many people ask me that as well. Um, but I, it's not that I'm giving up something. It's that I'm saying yes to a greater thing. Uh, not that marriage isn't like a beautiful vocation or anything. It's just like, well, the Lord has planted the seed in my heart and I want to serve his people with all my capacity. Um, because obviously within, within a family, uh, if I, if I happen to get married someday and become a wife and mother, your main vocation, your main focus is that family unit. Whereas for me, consecrating my life to God and giving it to the world in a sense, essentially I'm focused, like the humanity is going to be my children, you know, like I am called to be a spiritual mother. Um, to, to serve humanity rather than a single unit family. And, and is that difficult when you see friends and, and family maybe going on dates or getting married and things like that? Is it, is it a difficult thing for you? Um, if I start comparing, yes. <laughs> um, just because I, we all want human in, intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. Like ha- that's just a part of who we are. Yeah. But again, just like, okay, Jesus, I trust in you. I know that you're going to fulfill these desires in my heart that you've put there. And uh, just like constantly going back and looking at him in those moments. I, I want to get back to, to the more of the hard numbers that, that, oh, that sure. you're looking here mm-hmm. in terms of, of nuns becoming part of the Catholic Church. Is there a hard and fast number you want to attain? Right now, I can't say that, that I have a goal. You know, I don't know what I think would be really a good idea or something to consider would be to look at the Catholic schools that we have. 
uh, in our in our diocese. And all the Catholic schools used to be served by religious sisters, and now there's there's only one or two schools that I can think of that have religious sisters in them. And and we're talking about twenty or more schools. So I think in that sense, that would be a need. If I was going to say there's a number we need, it would be somehow related to that. That we we would like to have more religious sisters helping at the schools, you know, witnessing to the children, teaching them about God and living their faith in those type of communities. Um, And so that's the only thing that comes to mind when you ask, uh, you know, a hard goal that I can think of. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Father Ryan O'Neill is the Director of Vocation for the Archdiocese of Denver. Anna Karochi is a junior at Metropolitan State University of Denver who plans on becoming a nun after graduation. They joined us to discuss a shortage of nuns in the Archdiocese. There are shuttered factories, the remnants of a century-old sugar beet boom across rural Colorado. Today, those empty plants are environmental headaches, but one man thinks they also hold economic promise. Jesse Silverstein is with the Colorado Brownfields Partnership. He joins us to talk about efforts to reclaim and revitalize the leftovers of Colorado's sugar rush. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, My pleasure to be here. Yesterday on Colorado Matters, film producer Dan Garrison talked about the importance of sugar beets in Colorado history. Uh, They were a huge part of the economy here a century ago. Um, You represent the modern-day attempt to turn the sugar industry's leftovers, those are those empty buildings and acres of land, into economic opportunities for rural towns. How are you doing that? Well... These sites, which are large acreages with large buildings and oftentimes uh, associated with large acreages of piles of lime waste, um, are because that was a part of the processing. That was a part of the processing. Yes, uh, they represent opportunities, particularly in our sugar beet factories, uh, which built up. Uh, starting in Grand Junction, but built up uh, many of the local economies of the early uh, 1900s along the Eastern Plains, a lot of sugar beet towns. And what we're seeing is the economic opportunity that these sites have left. We have, uh, as I say, large acreages. We have uh, buildings that uh, often do have uh, asbestos contamination that needs to be dealt with before reuse or, or demolition. And I know there's a question about uh, the historic significance of some of these, and I think they're beautiful buildings. They really are if they're in good shape. Mm. Um, but what we also have is uh, highways, rail lines all coming together. Those are economic assets to those sites and to those communities. We have, uh, uh, in terms of electricity and electrical power, high levels of power that could uh, bring power into a new use as well as be places for renewable energy sites that can deliver power out as well. So they're prime locations, it seems. But like you're saying, there's this environmental concern. Also, the fact that there's, like you said, lime that was used in the process to to, to get the sugar out of sugar beets. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with something that overwhelming, it seems? Uh, that with The lime is still a question that needs to be answered. Uh We've done some investigation. There's been a lot of investigation done over the years of how to reuse that lime waste. Uh, the issue is an economic one that it's uh, it's sitting out there. It's weathered. It's many years old. You're not sure of what may have been dumped in it naturally or not. Uh, it is the home to uh, noxious weeds which grow on it, which is kind of a good thing because it keeps helps keep the dust suppressed a little bit. But there's organic matter as well as... Uh, uh, organic waste from the beets themselves that are still in it. And so 
and there's a lot of lime available across the country, across the world. So it's a transportation cost. It's good for filler materials, asphalt filler, things like that. Um, but it has little economic value. I think where the real value is is in the buildings and the sites themselves. And in terms of real estate locations, uh, we're really seeing a, a duality. Uh, we have, for instance, in, in Brighton, there's a sugar beet factory that was there. Right, up in Brighton of 85, yeah. Highway 85. Yeah. Highway 85. And, and in Longmont, too, which is looking at uses that may be a little bit different than agricultural because – those areas have become urbanized. There's different uses around them. That that's... Wasn't there an old smokestack up there that was part of a, a factory that was blown up or taken down recently, right? In Brighton, yeah, yeah. it was taken down, uh, I think, about 18 months ago, maybe two years ago now, uh, maybe a little bit longer. I mean, is that concerning for you, these these historical places, which you say are beautiful, that could maybe be revitalized or being destroyed because maybe they're, uh, they're a liability for the owner, it seems? Well, I think they're a question for the community to decide. Mm. I think they're very historic in terms of architecture. I think they're very historic in terms of Colorado industry uh, and, and Colorado uh, legacies. Uh, but sometimes they're in locations that could be better used for for economic advancement uh, and community advancement as well. How do we take these large sites rather than being abandoned because they look historic um, and put them into better use to meet the community needs? And and that's a community decision. I I kind of on the fence about that. It's yeah. uh, not my call on the on the historic side. Now, I, I, I want to note that Colorado still has one operating sugar plant, a sugar beet plant in Fort Morgan that processes about 70,000 tons of beets per year. This isn't a dead industry. Uh, and there are 27,000 acres planted in sugar beets in the state. Um, could some of these old buildings maybe be revitalized and, and used for the sugar beet industry itself? Well, I think what we're seeing is uh, the result of a consolidation in the industry over the past decades. And so some of these sites are still being used by the sugar beet industry. Uh, in Longmont, they're still using some of the storage containers by uh, used by the sugar companies. Ovid, there's a plant that was uh, uh, a plant, a factory. It's kind of a sugar beet. <laughs> yes, I, I, I get that. Yes. Unintentional. <laughs> um, that was purchased by the local sugar Beet Association and is still used for storage as well. The production facilities are not in use. And in fact, in that situation, the new owners decided to tear down the building and get rid of the environmental liability. Um, they can be expensive to deal with, uh, very much so. There's different ways that are used to reduce that cost. But I think the real thing that helps cover those environmental costs is putting it into a new use that can bring in value to the site itself and make it just part of the, the redevelopment cost or the reuse. Um, I, I had mentioned the the duality. So we had the urban areas that maybe are perhaps bringing pressure for different kinds of uses. We have uh, some of the more small towns and rural locations where we see the agricultural industries uh, growing up more and advancing uh, up in Sterling, there's a sugar beet factory there, yeah. and they have the advantage of having two mainline railroads meet right there: Union Pacific, uh, Burlington Northern, um, and Santa uh, Santa Fe. Yeah, the Burlington Northern the, Santa the, Fe Railroad. Two yeah. railroads, sorry, yeah, exactly. And um, so they've been uh, approached by various agricultural producers in the region, uh, multi-state region, about inter-rail transfers. 
So you might have an agricultural region, a small town or a set of growers that are adding economic value by bringing uh, production, food, agricultural processing, packaging right to the farms, bring value added there. And the way to get their product to much larger markets is by rail. And uh, using rail and short lines sometimes creates a, a time and expense burden where if you can get your product right to uh, transfer stations such as in Sterling where you can go north-south, east-west to the ports. And so these places are, are ideal for that that you're looking at. I, absolutely. T- t- tell me about Ovid, Colorado, the success story there. I know that there was a, a plant there for 40 years and had EPA funding. It was torn down. But you found a, a use for it, right? I I did not work hands-on in, in Ovid. That I was see. not one of my projects. I, I know about it a little bit. Um, EPA funding was used in uh, – in Eaton, Eaton, which yeah. they successfully took advantage of their roads and their uh, and their rail tracks to create an intermodal facility serving right. the whole um, area and and the Denver Julesburg Petroleum Basin, right. oil basin as well. So found some definite use of these buildings, and and yeah. do you think that's going to continue? That there will definitely we may be able to see some new uses for these buildings in the future. I think so. I think small towns are are coming into uh, a time of of uh, of growth and a place to be, and uh, and they're going to find uses for it. Agricultural uh, uses as well will find it. Jesse Silverstein is the founder and director of Colorado Brownfields. His organization, which works with the state, has been helping rural communities revamp and revitalize their historic sugar beet factories. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Nathan Heffel. Have a great day. <laughs>